Hey there. Thanks so much for joining us for the Life Support Podcast. It's where we talk to providers, community members, experts, and others about their experiences with health and the systems that create it. So, Jen C. and I are still here. playing hooky from the CFHA conference. Um, we're going to head right back in there. I promise it's super important stuff. Um, but we also had a super important conversation with, uh, Kim keys that we wanted to share with y'all. Um, so Jen, what do you know about parody now? Um, a lot more than I thought I, I'm being in healthcare for over 20 years. I thought I knew what it, you know, what it really meant to like understand what the, um, what I needed to ask in the insurance companies and like looking at my EOB, Mm -hmm. but I really didn't until like Kim was able to explain it. Like, no, you don't, you might pay differently for different services and why, or for what reasons are we paying different services for? Um, So I was like, Oh, I still have to educate my family a little bit more because they get these EOBs and sometimes they call me just because I've been in the industry long enough. They, you think you know something, but you really don't until you start talking to specialists like that. Mm-hmm. And, and even like, <laughs> the, it can be kind of scary how that can happen right. and th- that there's not a good control system on it. And I kind of walked away thinking, who knew that um, behavioral health parity could be so compelling? Right. <laughs> and, right. and I promise you guys that are listening, we're, we're talking about insurance for <laughs> behavioral health conditions on right. today's episode, but it's actually super interesting yeah, and, and super important too, especially when you talk about access to care. So so, so bear with us. I, I gave it away. I could have told you that we were talking about the best cookie recipe ever or something like that. But it's it's really interesting. Um, and, and I think one of the things that's so interesting about that is that this is happening in the middle of an immense provider shortage mm-hmm. and that this big barrier to care is actually like technically illegal. Right. And that was it, the other thing. I really didn't know how illegal this was, right? right? So it's crazy. Yeah. So so I I walked away like with my hackles up about um insurance coverage for behavioral health right. conditions and I and I didn't expect to like kind of get flared up like that about it. But <laughs> right. but it's it's important stuff. Yes. So yeah, I'm I'm glad we had that conversation yeah. with her. I definitely learned a lot and if you do think insurance is boring, you just listen to this episode because it's a really, it's enlightening, like, mm-hmm. you know, and it felt good, like, at the end of it to be just a little bit smarter when you're dealing with that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if we've already lost you, you're like, oh, God, they're going to talk about insurance. <laughs> um, that, you really need to uh, read your EOB. Read your EOB, people. Yeah. That's We can't say that enough. <laughs> right, right. But an understanding it, right, and that's where, like, this part comes in is she explains, like, what you should be looking out for. And it's not that hard. Like, I was like, oh, I understand what you're saying. You know, sometimes you think about it like it's, I don't understand what these EOBs are or what it means. So I'm just going to skip it. Right. Just like how most people say, just throw it away or shred it and or file it away. Why are you filing it if you're not even really looking at it? Right. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I will take the 15 seconds and look at it next time. My, my promise to Kim Keys. Exactly. Um, and we hope you can make that promise at the end of this episode today. And um, again, thank you for sticking with us. I Sorry, I gave it away early. It's about insurance, but it's really good. So so please listen. No, enjoy and learn. And especially if you're a learner, lifetime learner, like most of the people here at CUR, you, you'll take something out of it, I think.
Well, hey, Kim. Hi. Thanks so much for joining us today. Um, why don't we start off with something simple? Like, you know, can you introduce yourself to the <laughs> audience and um, talk about like what you do outside of work? What's your work and, you know, anything else you want to share? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can certainly try. <laughs> um, my name is Kim Keys. I'm a, a counselor. I've been a counselor for, I don't know, in various different ways since, I don't know, about for about 25 years or so. Um and now I'm running a group counseling practice. So there's about 12 therapists. I want to say, um, we just, we see a variety of different issues. The idea behind the practice ultimately is that anybody calling can get help with whatever particular issue they have. So it's a pretty general, but each of us specialize in very different things. Um, I don't know. Let's see outside of work. I moved here in 2007 from Oregon. Um, just because my, the places that I love are, I grew up next to Bend. And so everything was very river running and snowboarding and fly fishing. And Boise has all of those things. <laughs> so I was looking for something a little less populous, but mm, right. now for sure. <laughs> but I still snowboard and fly fish and river run and woodwork and all that stuff. So I'd host home now. Yeah. And run the stream of constantly moving people in Boise, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, now yeah. that that's the trend. <laughs> it's very true. It's very true. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, one of the reasons that we wanted to talk to you today is just to learn a little bit more about behavioral health parity. And so uh, I know I've heard this from you a little bit before, but um, as I mentioned to you, it, it's just fascinating to me and upsetting to me um, in, in all the right ways to like spur some action. So can you tell me a little bit more about um, behavioral health parity in Idaho and why it's important to you? Yeah, sure. I can try. It's a, I was talking to somebody earlier. It's such a complicated thing to try to explain because it really requires us to have a much better understanding of insurance than we normally do. Um, your average person, when I'm talking with them and talking with them about um, treatment limits and authorization and on, honestly, just even down to their premiums and co-pays, so many of us when we're looking at our insurance panel, looking at our benefit, we don't quite understand what all of that means. So to explain parity, I have to kind of ex explain in a broader sense how insurance companies work. But in a nutshell, just starting simply, parity means basically it equal status and equal pay, right? So when we're talking about behavioral health parity, we're talking about equal status and equal pay for behavioral health or substance use disorder treatment than we do for primary health conditions. Does that make sense? Yes, that, that does make sense. And I, um, as somebody who talks with my hands, I can hear you start to talk with your hands to try yeah. to explain this, which is, which is, uh, the, the way that we explain big concepts, right? Yes, <laughs> it really is. And I'm very much a hand talker. So <laughs> great, great for radio. You, you and I, <laughs> such a great radio person. <laughs> We'll, we'll figure this out. No, yeah. I, that's really helpful. And can you, can you tell me a little bit about how behavioral health parity or, or lack thereof really impacts Idaho providers? Yeah. And, and those are, those are great, great questions. I thank you so much for sending some of these questions were sent ahead so I could kind of chew on them, which was really helpful. And they got split out. A couple of the questions got split out. How does parity or lack of parity impact providers and then clients? And they both really go hand 
in hand in a lot of ways. So if I back up, there's there's really two sort of areas where parity gets applied. And one of those are, are called quantitative treatment limits. Those are things like the number of visits, right? So if I go to my doctor and I have cancer and my my, my doctor says, okay, you need um, you need three radiation treatments for this um, and then, you know, six weeks of chemo. A qual or a quantitative treatment limit is going to come back and say, sorry, we, even though it says you need three of the radiation, we're only going to do two because two is what's allowed in your benefit plan. So that's a quantitative one. It's one I can put a number to, right? Then there are other treatment limits that we call non-qualitative treatment limits. And those are the ones, or quantitative treatment limits, and those are the treatment limits that are really sticky and kind of hard to put your finger on in terms of why they're there or or how they happen, right? So one of those might be uh, like a prior authorization on, so what a prior authorization ultimately is, is say you come in for counseling and your insurance benefit says, well, we're not going to pay for counseling until your provider calls in and tells us what, what are the needs for that counseling. And then based on what they say, we may or may not um, cover that treatment service. That makes sense? Yeah, it definitely does. And I'm wondering, um, I, I know we'll talk a little bit about some specific examples, but if you had to tell like the very basic story of um, how lack of parity in action could could impact somebody, could you just walk us through like an example story? Because I think that'll really help listeners kind of understand uh, that in action. Yeah, absolutely. So if, I mean, if my plan requires no prior authorization to see, say my eye doctor, right, then why in the world would I need an authorization to see a specialist for my bipolar? And the reason, well, and there's multiple reasons that that impacts individual clients. So I had a client a while back and it took her almost three months to get into care at all because when she called her insurance plan, her insurance plan required her to talk to a, a, a what's called a, a care manager in-house with her panel that is actually working for her insurance plan. And then they determined if she needed to be referred to a higher level. That higher level was also within the insurance benefit plan, was a, was a counselor that was hired through them. So she had to talk to them almost really what amounts to stating her case, right? As to why she needed care. This is all over the phone. So she has no individual rapport with, with anyone. And only then after going through two of those levels, was she able to actually see a counselor of her choosing. So imagine going through all of that just to find a doctor that's going to treat your diabetes, calling someone, having a conversation with them, letting them know how sick you are, letting them know how it's impacting your daily life, letting them determine whether it's important enough to refer it on to the next higher level and then having to go through that again in order to get to somebody who can treat your diabetes in person, talk with you, talk about, you know, your your daily patterns and your your food intake and exercise sort of regimen and all in your insulin regimen and all of those things. So those are a lot of the barriers that are facing people trying to get into mental health treatment. Absolutely. That, and that makes a ton of sense. Thank you for walking us through that example. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think when you hold up kind of those two different conditions and those two different pathways, one, um, it, it almost brings up like a candy land board in my head that yes. uh, it, it just doesn't make sense. Right. Um, it really is a candy land board. And I mean, it's such a, I, one of my staff members, who deals almost every day with insurance companies, he calls it a broken windshield. It's exactly what it is. It's just, but if this, then this, if that, then this will wait, but no, but because that and that is not under this circumstance in this particular time. So 
it's right. over here somewhere. And, and then the patient has no idea that these <laughs> if then statements need to happen for them to get the treatment or the care or whatever right. that they may need. Yeah, right. That there's specific, you know, key phrases or maybe three words that because they didn't describe it in the same way, they're going to get denied services. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, well, <laughs> your explanation makes sense. The system does not. Um, <laughs> right. So, so what what impact does that system really have on providers in general and providers like you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that it's such a good question. And one of the, I mean, in, in some ways it's a really selfish reason that I got really interested in parity. It's such a weird world that I live in where as a business owner, my business does really, really well in times when my clients are really struggling, right? <laughs> it's just this crazy world. And, and that it applies to parity because from, from a business sense, uh, my interest in parity was keeping our doors open. It was the realization uh, really during COVID that became very acute for all of us in behavioral health that if at any point and two, twice at least during during that the first COVID year, <laughs> the year that shall not be named, that 2020 year, twice we had two insurance panels issue notices that they were cutting off telehealth services. So for a lot of our clients, there was no way for them to be able to get care without potentially putting their lives at risk and coming in. Um, so that's really where it started. Where it really impacts clients, though, is when providers stop being able to keep their doors open, then clients stop having any place to go get help. And that's really what we're seeing in Idaho. We have certainly, absolutely, we have a pretty massive behavioral health professional shortage in our country. Um, I can't remember the actual statistic around it, but 10 years ago, HNHS forecasted that we would need something like 20,000 more providers by 2022, by this year. And that's before we had what, what amounts to a 600, I think the number is 643% increase in depression rates across the country since COVID. So we do have a workforce shortage and I don't, I certainly don't want to, um, you know, undervalue the importance of that. But at the same time, we have a massive amount of providers who are giving up, honestly, on the entire insurance world and and going self-pay or private pay because they can't make it affordable. They can't keep their doors open and, and still work with insurance companies. And what that means for our clients then is not only are they paying for those premiums, but then they can't use those premiums because they have nobody in network. The Millman report, which was, was like 2018, I want to say, um, I've got it right here. Hang on. So the Millman report was a report to Congress about the mental health provision act right and the millman report highlighted a number of different things behavioral health in idaho is paid 50 percent those providers are paid 50.6 percent lower than commensurate providers in primary care or specialist care so to be clear i'm not putting counselors up against like a neurosurgeon right <laughs> those are not commensurate levels so in insurance rates establishment there's something called an rvu um, relative value unit and ultimately what they do is they take a few things. They take whatever service they're doing. So let's take a neurosurgeon and me. So one, the first thing they look at is, okay, how much education does it take for a neurosurgeon to do what they do and for Kim to do what she does? Well, the 
the neurosurgeon has, has to have a lot more education than I do. So there's one. Okay. Then number two, what are the tools that are required, right? The facility itself. Well, a neurosurgeon needs a lot different and more expensive facility than I do need to do my work. Um, then what are the materials? What are the tools? What is the liability? What's the risk of when things go wrong that I could get sued, right? So all of those are much higher for a neurosurgeon. So they're going to get reimbursement rates that are commensurate with that, that are equal to that. So we're not putting a counselor against a non-commensurate primary care person, okay? So there's some percentages to accommodate for that. It's behavioral health as a specialty or, or as a as a mental health uh, care and the commensurate equal to in primary care and we're still paid 50% lower. For inpatient or inpatient or outpatient network, it's looks like 8% lower, no, 8% higher utilization of out-of-network rates for Idaho than, than in-network. That What that means is that when somebody needs inpatient psychiatric or mental health care, most of them are having to go out-of-network, out of their benefits, in order to get that help. So all of the money that they're paying doesn't apply to their deductible the same and those kinds of things. And the same for outpatient facilities. So somebody who just comes to my office, they live at home, but they come in and they see a counselor once a week, they are still 30% higher utilizing out-of-network providers. And a lot of that is because the mental health providers are choosing not to work with insurance companies because they can't, because the because parity is not there. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, that does. I guess my question would be next is like, what are some of the signs? Because it sounds like the providers really understand this a little bit more than like a, a customer or a client patient. Um, what are some of the signs that health plans aren't meeting these type of parity requirements? Um, um, either for the provider's perspective and or the, the client's perspective. But I really want to hear the, the customer's perspective, right? Because how are we supposed to know as a consumer that the, the, these parities aren't being met? Right, right. And then and then where where to, you know, when to start sending in reports or when to file a, a independent review request. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it's such a great question. I want to go back, though, to something that you said where you said, you know, providers understand this. And what I'm finding really surprisingly is that providers don't understand this. Okay. And it's part of why I'm talking about it as much as I can and doing as much as I can to help people really understand what parity parity mm-hmm. is because it really is hard to put your finger on even myself sort of knowing what parity looks like and knowing what to start what to look for. It's virtually so much of that information lives in data that is reported or not reported an awful lot of the time but is reported to other entities certainly not the provider. So if I get a claim and my claim is denied and the code or the denial code says, you know, hey, they've hit their annual limits. I have no way of knowing if that's a parity violation because I don't know if they're applying that same uh, reasoning to the denial of primary health benefits. Does that make sense? Gotcha. That's what makes it a parity violation. It's not that they can't do it. It's that they have to treat them both the same. So if we're going to deny someone mental health care because they only get six visits a year, okay, well, then you have to do the exact same thing for their primary care. And I don't have a way of knowing that. So maybe the client does, you know, maybe they can look through that giant benefits package that everybody reads, right? (laughs) 
<laughs> right. Like, like everybody reads the fine print of their credit card. You've got to be kidding me. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it's really tough to be able to find what's, what's a parity violation or what's not. The encouragement that I give people, providers and clients alike, is work together, not just on your mental health care, but also on your billing. If you get a denial on a claim, they have to give you a reason and they have to give you sort of a reason for the reason. You have a right to call and say, hey, um, I'm noticing that my claim got denied because I have, it says because I have the pre-existing condition, right? Which is not legal anymore. Can you tell me, is that the same for my, you know, if I had diabetes, is that the same? And if they can't tell you that, it's a parity violation, most likely. The law for a lot of the times what it requires. So a, a recent example, I had a client, was it the client? No, we got a, a um, provider notification from one of our panels that categorically across the board limited all sessions to 45 minutes unless you called for a prior prior authorization. And the only time that an hour session would be approved is in a crisis. Now, setting aside that we weren't given any kind of outline in terms of what constitutes a crisis or not, my question would be, okay, so do you do you limit the time a person can see a doctor for a particular condition without prior authorization? Right. In fact, that right there is one of the key components that there was a landmark case last year. It was settled last year in court against uh, United Behavioral Health. Um, and one of the things that they were, they were cited to have been doing is exactly that, limiting behavioral health treatment differently than how they limit primary health care. So why, why do you think that so many plans, um, still function this way um, and not not in compliance with, with the law. It, isn't that amazing? I, it's so hard for me to wrap my head around, especially considering that this goes back to 2010. Actually, 2008 was the first Parity Equity Act, MHPI. It's a huge acronym and I can never remember what it's called, but that was the first Parity Act. And the Millman Report, which was the first, I believe, I could be misspeaking, but I believe it was the first of its kind was in 2018. And that's the first one that came out. That was the first survey or report saying, okay, so this this Parity Act went into place in 2008. It's now been 10 years. How close are we? And we were com- we were way off the mark. What the Millman report, report ultimately said was we we haven't even come close. And since even since then, there was a new one, the, con- the c- congressional analysis that went in in 2022, actually just this year. It says the exact same thing. The report in- suggests that health plans and insurers are failing to deliver parity for mental health and substance use disorder benefits. As to why, I I mean, I, I don't know other than to say it's going to cost when you, you know, when, when people face, when people, when, when insurance panels are, most of them are publicly traded. And so they are, you know, beholden to their investors. And if I am a publicly traded company and I'm beholden to my investors, I'm going to worry about my bottom dollar more than I'm going to worry about paying for equitable care for my um, enrollees. But that's a very jaded view. I realize it's just one I've come to believe over time. Right. Yeah. Um, what what can 
or what should we um, as consumers do to promote um, parity? Yeah. I mean, I would say uh, aside from, whether well, I think threefold. One, if we can, as consumers, if we can pay closer attention to our benefit plan and ultimately closer attention to the denials, okay? What's getting paid? What didn't get paid? When you go to a doctor, every time you go to a doctor, you get what's called an EOB, right? And you, you get them all the time. There's this piece of paper that comes that says, this is not a bill at the top, right? That's called an EOB, an ex- explanation of benefits. And right. they said, hey, you're, this is the doctor that you saw. This is the date that you saw them on. This is the amount that they billed us. And this is the amount we're going to pay. And this is the amount that your doctor's office is going to bill you. And this is the amount that, that we denied. Okay. And if we can look at all three of those or all four of those actually, and we can look and see, okay, what's my insurance company paying for? What are they not paying for? Am I paying a higher copay? That's a that's actually one of the most common violations. Am I paying a higher copay for my mental health than I am my doctor, right? So if we can pay closer to t- attention to the differences on our EOBs, that will help a lot. I think secondly, if we can, as we start to get more knowledge about what this looks like, the more we can communicate it to other people, friends, family, so that we can hear and see things. And the other thing would be, I would say, don't hesitate and don't be shy at all about calling your benefit plan and saying, hey, I'd like to know how you're determining the treatment limits for mental health versus the treatment limits for my primary care conditions. The Consolidated Appropriations Act, which was passed in 2020, uh, went into effect, uh, I think, Feb- well, different pieces of it are going into effect at different times, but it was passed in 2021 um, or passed in 20 to be effective in 2021. Um, it requires, upon request, which I find interesting, um, insurance panels to submit a comprehensive analysis that compares mental health and substance use treatment codes and how they're dealing with those and their primary health codes. And those are, if if this secretary considers in those analysis that, that it's that they're off, they're given, I think it's like 45 days to fix it. They can't, they have to submit a, a, a notification to Congress. That's all public information. So we could call and ask about those things. And what I find, I'm just so curious too, is when and if we call and find out about these things, if if we're told, no, you can't have that information or we don't have it or what people are being told. Because that's the only way I think that ultimately we're going to fix this is if, if there's more transparency in insurance panels. Right. What would be um, a, the provider's point of view on that, on promoting parity? No, understand it, especially just- as a provider. Um, understand it, understand what it is um, learn, you know, we know more than anything how to compare, right? My client has no way of knowing, okay, you needed to call and get a prior authorization for me to continue care, but don't you have to do that for everybody? Only I'm the person that knows, no, in fact, I very rarely have to do that now. And so when I have to do that, I have to ask myself, huh, why this person and not the 50 other people that are on my caseload, right? Providers are going to know that more than anything. So pay attention to those anomalies, pay attention to those denials, pay attention when you get a notice that says, um, in fact, the last report to Congress indicated four areas where um, in panels were out of compliance. One was pre-authorization or pre-certification requirements. The other one is that network um, provider admission standards, which I find super fascinating because that one has entirely to do with our fee schedules and what what they're going to find. And that's what this report found is that when therapists go to initially apply to be an in-network provider, 
provider. They're given a proposed fee schedule and some of them are em embarrassingly low. I had one recently come back with a fee schedule that was $30 an hour, which is, I can't even, I can't do that math in my head, honestly. <laughs> it's just, it's ridiculous. Our rates are a hundred and uh, we just, we just changed them 150 an hour and they were proposing $30 an hour. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's some of those admission standards. Some of them even require um, additional education beyond what our actual license is, very specific to their panel or something that they want us to have. Some of them require specific supervision. Like I'm not actually, according to my license, I'm not required to have supervision beyond just collateral staffing periodically when I feel like I have a high risk case. I do have insurance panels in the past that have come back and required all of us to be under supervision for the, for us to be on panel with them. Well, my question to them would be, if you're not doing that for your primary care physicians, then you can't do it for me. I have a full license. They have a full license, so we don't have to do it. So some of that is that admission standards. The third was concurrent uh, care review. So really what that is, is um, when a person is already in care, a provider having to call and get authorization for them to continue care. And then the four was lim limiting what's called ABA, um, Applied Behavioral Anal Analysis for Autism Spectrum Disorder. But those are the four categories that this 2022 report indicated were had the highest level of parity violations. So those, those are the things that we can be looking for. And and the things that we can kind of be outraged about. And, yeah. I, and, and, and I think just to bring it back, we've talked a lot about out, um, I think some of the infrastructure and some of the mechanisms. Um, and I think that that makes sense for a lot of people. And then I also think that the stories of patients and providers um, really resonate with a lot of people. Is there a story about um, how this has impacted um, a client that, that you want to share that you're willing to share? It's good. And willingness would be, would be absolutely there. It's just so hard because like I said, so much of this is known on the back end. And so for us right now, really what we're doing is, is, is guessing, right? Guessing or the, all of the indications are there, but we're just not sure. Um, so, and so what we're left with are these really sort of vague examples. Um, one, my, my client was limited to 45 minutes and I'll tell you what it was a very high crisis client. Do I have the time to call every week and get authorization? No, I don't. It takes over an hour, most of the time, about two hours to be on the phone for one prior authorization. Oh, name me a provider that has time to do that. We're seeing clients. That's what we have to do. Um, so right. what happens as a mental health provider, at least for me, is we just eat it because I'm not about to put my client at risk like that. <laughs> So a lot of the times the sort of horror stories are that the, the providers really take a hit to their business and their bottom line, which again, I think is the reason a lot of providers are choosing to just do self-pay only and to not deal with insurance companies because they don't feel that they can do it. And so it really limits limits options for um, for uh, clients. And you know, in, in terms of individual stories, I don't know about anybody else out there, but I don't think you have to talk to many people or talk to your friends or I don't know, go to class or go to work and hear the difficulties people have had in the last three years. People have had family members dying. People have experienced suicide and addiction and domestic violence on levels we haven't seen in a really long time. And our wait lists are months long. And part of, part of that, a big part of that 
is is people providers not being on their insurance panels. So when a client calls to get help, either they can't most of the time they can't find a provider that is within their within their um, benefit package. And when they do, even if they are or they can afford the help, a lot of times those folks are are full as well. You know, it just seems like it creates this horrible system, um, uh, systemic barriers, yeah. uh, not not just accidental. And like you said, you, you don't want to be jaded, but it's um, just so frustrating to look out and see the lack of options for both providers and patients that really want to be connected to to help support that client. Um, so uh, I, I really appreciate what you have been able to share um, with us around this major issue. Kim, is there anything that we miss that you definitely want to um, just kind of put out there as a, a another point or something like that? Um, other than to just say, please pay attention, <laughs> take a look at your benefits, just be more curious maybe than we have before. And um, the, the newest Consolidated Appropriations Act, like I said, requires insurance panels to be conducting and submitting those annual reports, um, analysis reports. And I guess if, if I had any Anything to leave you all with, it would be be on the lookout for those, find out, ask as many questions as you can. And because really we need those reports in the hands of consumers so that we can make educated decisions on, on our care. Yeah, definitely. I definitely learned that and we'll definitely be more aware of what I'm looking at. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I hereby promise uh, to not just shred my EOB uh, <laughs> right <laughs> into my recycling bin. Yay, good. Don't shred it. In fact, when you get your next EOB, EOB, pull it up and compare the two of them. Look at them directly. And if you have anything that like sticks out, like, wait, that doesn't make any sense, then trust yourself. Trust, trust your gut. Call the provider. Ask them what's going on. Yeah, that that makes a ton of sense. And I think, you know, it, I, I think it's important if we leave folks that are listening with kind of that message, all of us, the three of us having this conversation, we live and breathe um, healthcare administration and clinical services. And, and, I've, and I find, you know, even with the things I do during the day, when I get that EOB for my kids services or that time I took them to urgent care or something, I, I still don't understand it. And um, so I, I think that the more literacy we can have there and the more confidence it just seems really important. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. Especially if we're going to see any kind of change. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. And I really appreciate it. Thanks for doing it. And thanks for getting mad with me. <laughs> Anytime. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I just appreciate you getting the information out there. I think it's, it's a really needed, it's, it's really needed. Thanks so much for listening. Please find us on social or our website to learn more about what CHU does and how to support with and engage our work. Until next time, let's all support each other with a little life support. 